This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, episode 36. I found in the past, athletes like feel pressured. When, when a measure doesn't go up, sometimes they get down on themselves like, oh, I should have been faster. Right. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. I'm Scott Caulfield. With me today, Corey Kennedy, Strength and Conditioning Coach, the Institut National du Sport du Quebec. How'd I do? You did pretty good. Nice. I am from Vermont, so I was pretty darn close to Canada, you know. Not that far from Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so you are up in Montreal. That's where you're based out now? Yep. And uh, strength and conditioning coach, tell us a little bit about who you work with and what you do there at the Institute of Sport. Perfect. We have um, we have four national sport institutes in Canada, uh, one in Victoria, one in Calgary, one in Toronto, and one in Montreal, where all of our national team athletes through all the different sports will sort of filter throughout. And uh, I'm a, a strength coach there. Now I work primarily with diving and women's hockey, but because of how many sports live there and the flow through of different, you know, an athlete gets carded in the Montreal area tomorrow, they're going to come in and start working. So in the past, uh, up to Rio, for example, I had 11 different athletes from seven different sports that were at the games. So that was a bit crazier, but our staff's grown and it's allowed me to just sort of stick with one or two groups. It makes life a little simpler. Very cool. Did you always, uh, I mean, you're from, this is going to sound funny, it's a funny question. You're from Canada, you're working in Institute Sport, did you always want to train the hockey team? <laughs> no, not really. You know, I didn't play a lot of hockey, but I, I love watching hockey. And uh, so a lot of the guys growing up, it's the same football here, yeah. where a lot, so many NCAA and NFL jobs, it's like, want to do football I was a football player in college so I started thinking the football route and then um, when I got my first sort of full-time gig in strength and conditioning we had such a variety of sports that I was quickly switching but the hockey market still seemed so saturated that I at the time I was like I'm not chasing that yeah 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 uh, that's cool um, yeah and so um, you did your undergrad in Toronto. Talk a little bit about, did is that when you kind of, did you know that strength and conditioning was going to be a pro, uh, profession to be able to pursue when you were an undergrad, or were you not really sure yet still? It's sort of like half and half. I, um, I was thinking through high school of different sciences and, and even engineering. Uh, I always sort of had a, a scientific side to me and math side that, that I liked a lot more than sort of the sociology and English. My last year of high school, I, I had so to that point thought I'll probably do some sort of engineering and I, I did an exercise science class and just loved the idea. We did all sorts of stuff in that that senior year exercise science. We we had a project where we had to like analyze a sport movement and try to explain it, which I'd love to go back and see what I was writing when right. I was 17 years yeah, old and had no, no idea. But um, we did, there's a bit of anatomy, there's a little bit of everything. And so at that point I quickly changed gears and I was like, I don't even know what these careers are. Yeah. But I love this stuff. So I went into 
Tekin, or the degree at the time was called Physical Education and Health at U of T, and started. And I, I, I played football through college, so I was, I was an athlete who was still trying to train and trying to figure things out. And I slowly started to think just, I, I want to do performance. But I, at the time, I was reading lots of nutrition stuff, supplementation, uh, strength and conditioning. And I never really said, like, I'm going to be a strength coach. I just kept going, I want to work in sport. I want to work in sport. I want to work in sport. And it really wasn't until the very end that it seemed like that was the natural go-to. Nice. And then you got your master's from Edith Cowan, Australia. Uh, did you do that? A little bit later on in your career, or did you do that right after? I took uh, two and a half to three years from when I finished my undergrad. I had this feeling right away. Um, I didn't really have mentors in undergrad that now, with a lot of internships, there are. Um, we didn't really have structured strength and conditioning at Toronto at the time. Now they have a full-time staff, and it's a lot better. But at the time, it was kind of like the head coach gave the job to one of the assistance to yeah. just you know pick up Epley's book or whoever wherever he gets it it yeah, didn't yeah. matter he was just in charge but it, well, he wasn't a strength coach so yeah. we didn't really have I didn't have great influences in it at the school at the time so my my influences started online like a lot of people and my thought was man all these people have just built their their brand and their name so leaving school, I thought, oh, I, I don't need to do a master's. It just seemed way too academic. I thought, you just got to get in the trenches, you yeah. know, build your your brand. And after a couple of years of trying to do that, I said, well, to still get like an institutional high performance job, you need graduate studies. And I, at the same time, was just super curious. I, I was like, I actually want to do this. I yeah. want to study more. Yeah. And how'd you, so how'd you decide on that program? Did you look at a lot, kind of? Yeah, I, I took a lot of time for that because uh, I was still working full time and I enjoyed it. And also the pressure of, uh, you know, student loans and things yeah, like that. Yeah. I thought, oh man, I, I don't want to stop working already yeah. a couple of years into my career. So I was looking at different options um, in person to have supervised masters, different online options and a lot of going back and forth. At the end of the day, it was, it was the most expensive option, unfortunately, because it means I still have student loans, <laughs> but it turned out to be the most convenient if you're willing to work really hard. I ended up working a full-time job the whole time and just studying at night yeah. and uh, made for long nights throughout that year and a half, but I... I realize now that those full-time strength conditioning hours for a year and a half were equally invaluable. Yeah. So I don't regret it at all. Yeah. No, and I did the same thing. I uh, did my online master's from University of Denver, and it was really the only the only option that I would have ever chosen because I wasn't going to stop working or work less. And I knew that classes I I remember taking classes in college even that were like those one day classes that were like three hours I hated the, that kind of stuff I was like I can't sit in the classroom for three hours okay. once a week and try and study so that was the only uh, way that worked how about uh, what are some of the kind of highlights of that program if people are uh, thinking about an online masters that you would say the best parts of the Edith Callum program were well, I think that, first of all, what drew me there was the, the staff is incredible with um, Sophia Nymphius and Greg Half as the two that sort of run the program. And then, you know, just the staff at Edith County and the amount of publications that come out of there. I thought, man, access to the staff is, is great. And 
you're not there, so it's not quite the same. Yeah. Um, I'll say, but you always have the chance to, to fire off emails and message boards and things to ask people. But they're they're updating. They they all publish so much that they're updating the content sometimes with their own publications, but sometimes with new stuff every semester. So you're really up to date with everything that's coming out in the literature, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's great. That's huge. And did you have to do some sort of final project or thesis or what was your kind of end capstone thing or it's non-thesis based the capstone is uh there's two weeks you go to australia and it's almost like a conference like we did here they'll structure the days with certain speakers some of them are already staff at east cowan some of them are adjunct faculty that they'll bring in and you just do two straight weeks, full days where, you know, you'll do a morning and you'll do roundtable discussions and work on, you know, periodization and programming. You'll talk about, you know, MAS and 3015 and different types of conditioning and force plates and timing gates and uh, agility, speed. And just to make sure that after all that time of being a, an online you know, name yeah. that you can actually put into action a lot of this. And uh, with Greg and his wife being big weightlifting coaches, you learn all the weightlifting movements, make sure you can coach. So that's the end, or sorry, you have to do that to graduate. But each course had more or less the same structure where you had all of your lectures and you had maybe a, a midterm and a final exam, but you also had a paper that you had to write. And the paper has to meet the specifications of the Australian Strength and Conditioning Journal. Mm. So if you, they're essentially all lit reviews because you haven't done an actual research study yourself, but you have the right to customize it however you want. So all of a sudden you, Scott, love, love Shred and Pow. And you're like, I want to, I want to know all about skiing and snowboarding. That's what, that's my thing. You know, advanced biomechanics and modern strength training and physiology. And you, you can tailor all of them to snowboarding. That's cool. And then you do a legit paper that you, if you did a great job, you could potentially submit. Um, But the rigor to writing the paper is so strong that I felt like, you know, it was almost like doing three or four studies. Yeah. Very nice, very nice. And you mentioned the con- conference. Uh, we are here at the well at the end of the coaches conference. It's just afterwards. But you uh, spoke about monitoring and force plate usage. You guys do a lot of that. I saw you speak on it back in May uh, at the USOC. So tell us a little bit about what you covered in your topic in your session. Yeah, I tried to. Uh well, I covered monitoring with force plates a little bit, and then I tried to pull out and do sort of a, a really high philosophical view of how to, you know, substitute force plates for any technology or other tool that you have. Um, a lot of times when you start to do this, we, we've been fortunate that as a team, this was something we decided to do um, when we opened five years ago, and we built out a system that we think works really well with the force plates as one example but we do all different technologies as well and when people want to know more about it or they start to get into it usually it ends up with well what's the what's the number what am i look what do i look at what's that number and i'm always like well that number doesn't matter if you don't know what the plate is telling you like what what is a jump and what you know, what are force traces look like? How are they affected by training? Like, let's understand that first. So I wanted to sort of make the talk because I, I know that 
when we're talking about college and you have, you know, up to a thousand coaches here, there's going to be a lot of small colleges that won't buy force plates for a long time. So I, I kind of boiled it down to four main points. I, I themed it after Star Wars. I, I like to theme it after some pop culture so that it sinks in. Um, I talked about building your own intuition and how data collection and reflection can help that. Uh, so that when you're in the day-to-day, you don't have to feel like you're always following an algorithm. A lot of times we discuss, debate whether it's art or science of coaching, but yeah. really once you have a bit of data to have a concrete reference, then you're going to be able to wing it a little bit more, but it's not, you're not faking it. You're just re- referencing something you've already done. Yeah. Then um, talked about buy-in. So I called it recruiting rebels and not stormtroopers. <laughs> sort of how that, uh, you really have to get the athletes to understand. And then after that, they'll do any testing you want. Yeah. You're like, hey, will you jump today? Will you do a mid-thigh pull? Can I get you to you know, sprint your guts out on this bike? <laughs> A lot of times it seems scary at first. It seems like athletes wouldn't like it. But if you build a system and are showing that you're tracking the data and it affects your decisions, most of the time they'll be like, I'll do that. What yeah. do you need? What do you need? And you're like, oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, the third one was called uh, build, use a lightsaber, stick with your lightsaber. And that was just to, to discuss the simplicity of the, the tools that Jedis use compared to, say, the Death Star. <laughs> they just have that wand it's not a lot but they know exactly what it's going to do and so anytime we get a gps or a force plate you know take the time to understand what the metrics are and where they're coming from we have some great vendors here that have great technology but sometimes they just spit out an algorithm or a number and if you don't know why or how that they came to that um, sometimes it won't allow you to understand what what's happening when it changes and i'm not saying so i said do you know how to build your own system? And then in my talk, I said, look, it's not efficient. Don't if you don't have to. But you should kind of be able to to bootstrap it if you had to because you're like, well, I know what we're, we're measuring and I know what they're doing and I know what that means for a human system. So now I can buy a force decks or some other software and, and run it and I know what they, they're for. And the last one was just uh, protect the galaxy was sort of the role of Jedi in, in those movies. And how monitoring doesn't really matter if it's not helping your athletes win. And so I kind of used a case study of uh, one of the athletes that I work with over the last three years to show how we track things over time to have the ability to reflect and change and adapt and how you know, for a long period of time, I thought we were doing good work. And here was an athlete at the absolute highest level but things weren't really changed, hadn't changed much. And it's understandable because she, she still scores high international team on all testing, but she still wants to be better. And mm-hmm. I want her to be better. And when we started to pick it apart a little bit and put in a strategy to affect one or two things, we saw some big changes happen within the last 2016-2017 season. And having that kind of robust data collection, I could go back and look at it and say, well, you can see some big changes here. What do we do? What do we not do? So I kind of explained the, the rules of thumb I put into place, the 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 strength training I, I planned to do and what the effects were. Nice. Well, that's great. What are, what would be, so what some of your recommendations for some of these people that don't have a lot of resources as far as like technology, data collection? I mean, yeah, I think number one is always a, a really base level of stats. So you, 
the one thing we miss the boat on a lot is knowing whether we've made an actual change and it's not hard when you learn it but stats are intimidating most of us are meatheads who had that research methods class in in undergrad and probably another if you did graduate studies and it usually is like the one you're not really paying attention to yeah so then now we know and then they're in it's in every study but a lot of times people will uh offload that work to someone else to hey can you run the stats here's my 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 excel sheet so i usually recommend that people learn some really basic stats so you can say okay this is all i need to be able to say that any measure i have is a change is a real change because even if a jump mat we i talked in in jumping with force plates that you can get way more data and way more resolution on changes with all the different metrics they choose instead of just jump height but jump height still matters and it still will change if you're in a a good or bad place so if you collect jump height um on one athlete on say five to ten jumps one day and you do that three days in a row you'll be able to know how variable that measure is within a short time frame and after that you can be sure when things go back and you decide on whatever thresholds it'll depend on your measure um Currently, I I have one of my roles that's within the institute, but it's a little bit extra. Is there's a pro hockey league in Canada for women uh, called the Canadian Women's Hockey League, and so this year I'm training their whole team along with the the women I train for Hockey Canada. And with them, they don't have a ton of resources, and they're they're in a different place in the city. So I only go up and see them once a week, and then I write their workout for the other days. But because of that, I can't really bring much technology, and I'm running in one hour session. I'm running through their whole team. Yeah. I just do broad jumps. I okay. I make them do two broad jumps every time I'm there every week. Um, I just lay down my tape measure. They know the drill at the same kind of moment within the workout. They'll come and jump. I record them. I do a little bit of stats over the first couple of weeks um, to see where we're at, and what the baselines were, and how much change within each workout for for most of the team and then now you know i've tracked through the eight nine weeks of the season i have these nice trend lines and i've decided on what i think is meaningful and when an athlete has has actually improved this year compared to where they started and that is just a tape measure that's the cheapest wow. thing you can come with because i'm just trying to keep a certain resolution on it yeah and i like what you said about uh how once you kind of get them bought in on it that they'll do whatever right so how do you do how do you get that buy-in from athletes or how do you kind of talk how do you talk them into like no really this i know this may seem dumb or like the yeah like running your guts out on the bike for this test there's there's a few ways that i do it one anytime like force plates are are cool if you have no idea and what we built out with a page um what we built out with our system that's awesome is that it, every athlete has their own page, their own individual Excel sheet for their name and their data collection. And it does have a, a colored scoring system for our, we have sort of two sections in the page, long-term tracking and short-term. And the short-term, um, we have 
basically a stoplight system, uh, but we added blue for like a super compensation. So we have red is pretty bad. Yellow means, oh, you're a little down today, but it might not be that big a deal. That's up to the context again for you to decide with your intuition. Green is a fairly big band of what we determine is regular based on that one athlete. We use their own variability to determine that. And then blue is, I'm doing awesome. You know, I'm flying. And once they start to see their colors and they realize because it does link up with how they feel most of the time. Okay. Every once in a while, you have like, oh, I'm surprised I'm a blue. Or, yeah. oh, I'm surprised I'm a red. But 90% of the time, you know, athletes will be like, this is going to be red. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. They know. Yeah. They know yeah. if yesterday was real tough yeah. if, or they didn't sleep. So, number one, knowing that they have their own page that tracks them usually gets them excited to see right. the change. The second thing I like to do now, that's something I've done a lot more recently, is uh, I try to always explain to the athlete, like, I am responsible for the result every time. Yeah. I found in the past, athletes, like, feel pressured. when When a measure doesn't go up, Sometimes they get down on themselves like, oh, I should have been faster, right. should right. have been stronger. I try to make it really clear now, like your responsibilities are to, to come to the gym as often as we agree with full effort. Hopefully you listen to me when I, when I give you some, some things to do, whether it's the exercises, the cues and, and the ways of thinking about it. And then all those habits of, you know, be responsible to your sleep, your nutrition, things like that. Like you can't be sleeping four hours a night and expect that to help. Once you take care of all that, well then the results are my responsibility. But with that, I'm going to be using, I'm going to use data. I'm going to use, I'm, I'm going to know where we're at so that I can change it. And if we're not changing it, then I'll adapt. That'll be, that'll be up to me. Yeah. And once they kind of agree on that, then they feel somewhat obligated to be like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll provide that data because I know that you're going to use it. That's great. No, I didn't think that data definitely will make them feel more uh, taken care of, too. It's like, no, we're using this science to help you get better. Like, you're bought into it. There's a there's a lot of our, our national teams, um, I'm sure USA national teams, every country's national teams, colleges, pro teams, so many teams that just do one, two, three time a year testing. And there's times the athletes don't even see. Yeah. Or if they get a report of the results, but they don't necessarily know what's changed in their program compared to the rest of the team. Right. You know, it's not clear like, wow, this is your gap and we're hitting strength now because you don't have it. And with that, sometimes they dread like, oh, it's quarterly fitness testing. Right, whatever. right, right. Whereas like if daily and weekly, you're like, okay, this is a bit off. This is normal though. I expect that to come back or this has been three, four weeks. It hasn't changed. I think we're going to change the strategy. When I start doing that, they don't mind jumping on and giving a, yeah. a quick check yeah. on things. And uh, have you gotten more, uh, is that, you know, the amount of testing you do and has that gotten uh, increased being at the Institute of Sport or did, were you always kind of like into that and think you know onto something like ah oh, you know what I think this is really helpful I see the athletes are responding to it I'd say there's definitely more and um, it's more systematic because I have a lot more tools that I can make sure I know that I have and I know I have uh, use with but when I was in Toronto at uh, this place Fitz, uh, the owner, Dr. Thomas Lamb, and he's still there, 
was a was a great mentor at the time and he he was always really big on evidence based and that was a that was a a big driver for me to actually work there. I had visited a couple different companies and things when I when I decided like I need to do this full time, uh, not my own business because that's just going to take too long. Yeah. I want to join, you know, a place that's running well. And I had a mix of sort of job interviews where they're real posted jobs where uh, I got I got the offer, but. I also went to some places that didn't have open jobs to find out at the time. I was like, what makes all these places different? Because it, it was the same time I had started Edith Cowan. And so I had an idea now that what I wanted in my career in terms of high-performance sport. And he he struck me right away as a really big evidence-based guy and a guy who um, used a lot of different methods of, you know, sometimes block, sometimes undulate, different types of programming but to really be, really be individual for the qualities that he was getting. And there was other places I went to at the time with the same age of athlete high school who were just running the same circuits with everyone where it was like you run the prowler, you go right, and, you, right. you know, you do these burpees and then you do, you know, a kettlebell swing. And, you, and I was like, man, doesn't there's hockey and soccer and whatever. And they were just getting a, an hour-long workout that felt right. intense. So I started working there and he was a guy who, even though, we, even if we didn't always have the budget for it, he was always trying to get things and that we could use for that. And we, we bought Pasco's, um, in 2010 before a lot of these softwares were out and we were trying to use them and we got a lot of really cool information, but, uh, it wasn't systematized the way I do now. Like at the time we struggled with the automating it so that we could do things quickly. It would be like, we'd record some things. We'd look at, we go, wow, cool. Didn't realize that two different types of athletes jumping. We tested different lifts on there to find out like, uh, with, with Tim Sukamel and Paul comfort stuff on catches and pulls, we'd have days where I, I would just do my Olympic lifting on there. And I'd look at my curves to see what, what it clean looks like yeah, yeah. heavy, light snatch. So I learned a lot about measuring and things there and he was a great influence on that but there were certain stuff we tested regularly like we had a jump mat and timing gates but force plates we didn't have a, a tight process so it was it was hard to do a lot of so then when I got here and I was able to leverage the help of you know our biomechanics staff and things like that where I said okay we're going to build out uh, I don't know how to write all the code but I was like I know exactly what I want to look at yeah cool and we did it together that's super cool um you talked about being in the private facility and working with him and then knowing that you wanted to go into high performance sports. So, uh, how did you decide that? And then how did you go about pursuing that? What, maybe what things did you need to, um, make sure that you, you know, boxes you checked that you needed to have to be able to secure a job like that? And yeah, how'd you end up getting to the national level like that? International? Yeah. Um, so I kind of, I kind of knew, like you said, after my undergrad, it took about two or three years before I decided like, I want, um, I want high performance, which was to me at the time, it was either professional or Olympic. I mean, a lot of people would, would listen if the Carolina Panthers called or, you know, the Montreal Canadians or Toronto Maple Leafs, things like that. Cause it's, you know, it's the things we all watch, um, but I, I really respected a lot of, I started to meet, know, know a lot more Olympians who 
the type of work that they did. So when I, I realized I wanted that level of high performance, that's when I knew a master's was, was non-negotiable. And so I started the East Cowan program and I went looking for a place where I could get more experience. Cause at the time when I'd started my business, you know, at least half your day is personal training because that's right. going to pay the bills easiest. And then I was finding random athletes and I was like, I'll never get those athletes until I make two, three, four of them really stand out. But right now you have no idea what influence that one athlete you meet is yeah. going to be. Yep. So I, when I got to him and realized like he had a, a great facility and a great approach, we started working together. He basically, we, we had it set up where our Olympic and, and pro and collegiate athletes would come in the morning. And then early afternoon, we had sort of high performance high school number one, which would be a bit more of your seniors, kids who either got out of school a bit earlier or were able to just come from school themselves and the parents weren't really, um, didn't care. They would come get them later, if anything. And then the last session of the night would be um, sort of our developmental high school, sometimes even not high school. But those are the type of kids that would go home and eat and their parents bring them to the gym because they yeah. want to know. And doing that and, and the amount of time and effort we put into the Olympic and collegiate guys, I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do all the time. Then then was the process of reflection. And um, part of it was like, got to have a weightlifting certification. And you guys have USAW. We have our just national collegiate coaching program that works through all the sports. So we have a weightlifting one. So did that. Um, I, I did uh, a lot of stuff at FITS where I said, man, if, if we bring our brand worldwide, well, I'll be worldwide. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so that was something that I did and, and I can't say that it worked. I don't know if it worked, but just trying to do as much as I could to, to promote both of us and and he had a lot of tools already in place and I kind of leveraged and it just helped him deliver those and some of them were we did a lot of speaking in Toronto for coaches and sports and we tried to operate a blog um, that would still be there I don't think he writes as much as when I was there where we were like let's be really evidence-based put out really good content that you can look back on and no one's going to go like well you can't say that that's not that's not true um, so we tried to have a certain amount of rigor to the, the content we put out um, and then let the athletes speak for themselves. And we were at the time the the Institute in Toronto wasn't built yet. They built that in, for Pan Am games. The organization existed, but they really just delivered services to sports around the city and province, but they didn't have a gym. Mm. So there was a lot of Olympic athletes in Toronto that were still working at a number of different gyms. And we, had a number of different Olympic sports that we were working with through from Vancouver, London, and Sochi. So with that, I was able to build my Olympic network at the same time. Nice. And then uh, that opportunity came up because cool. it's a small world. Nice. Yeah. So what, what would you, what recommendations do you have if someone's listening to this and they're like, man, I, I want to be an Olympic strength conditioning coach? Well, number one, I, I think, and uh, I'm biased, I think it's the hardest of the jobs in strength and conditioning because you get, well, not the hardest, it's the most involved. Okay. There's no there's no issue with the NFL or college when off-season they go home. Like, once you start 
taking that money, carting money. Most of them, that's their full-time job for these for quads at a time. You're getting four-year views where they're in the gym as often as you want. There's no contact hour limits. So there's a certain accountability to that that you have to understand measures and technology. And and we're accountable to the the network, I'll say. There's an agency that that funds the sports, and they decide every year whether snowboard's going to get more or less money. And part of that is you have to prove what you've done, whether it's working. Do you guys, so we have a concept called the gold medal profile that every sport, we have to be providing a map where we're saying, this is what it takes to win a medal in this sport. And then we can filter back to, are we in line with that? So it's a lot more involved than just coming in and saying, I'm going to teach great movement patterns, you know, I'm going to make sure they work hard and they understand discipline. So you have to really do science. So... Um, again, a master's is is non-negotiable. Nowadays, I would say if you know that coming out of undergrad, I don't know that I would do the discount again if I knew in undergrad, like I definitely want this. I would say seek out the university or the types of profs that do really great work in sport because then you get to spend all day with them or relatively they're busy. Um, and then, and then getting experience, obviously interning is one of those things everyone's done and everyone does it. And I'm pretty flexible with our interns. We have s- systematic ones through the universities where I'll get an, uh, an intern for 150 or 300 hours for a term or a semester. But sometimes I meet people and I say, Hey, if you just want to come every time I'm testing a team. That's cool with me. I yeah. I could always use help. You can always use an extra body yeah. in case there's an issue. Yeah. And so sometimes I'll invite people to say like, hey, I know you're busy, you're working, but you want to keep seeing what we do and getting, trying all the tools and, and playing everything. So um, get connected and talk to people and, and try to volunteer as often as you can, even if it's not uh, a full year unpaid internship. That's, I know those are hard. So, right. Yeah, no, I definitely, I think we've said that before on here a lot too. It's uh, some of these unpaid volunteer p- things are invaluable experience and you never know what they're going to lead into. Like I've people have heard me say that I volunteered with Dartmouth football before they ended up bringing me on and then I work with men's women swimming and like snowball effect. But if I had never volunteered in the first place, I never would have had that door open. So um, yeah, getting that experience was huge. Um, I've got a few other questions here. Um, you know, when did you get your uh, CSCS? Did you do that in your undergrad or did you do it when you got out? Was, was your I, program I based, you know, s- supported to prepare you for that? Um, it really wasn't. There's nothing in the program that discussed it. I mean, I'm pretty sure it had been mentioned in a course. But there wasn't. There was actually a lot more attention paid to uh, the Canadian Society of Exercise Physiology and writing the uh, CSEP, CEP, Canadian Certified Exercise Physiologist, and that was sort of the view in Canada. It was like um, a lot of times, especially with graduate work, was more on exercise physiology, and there really isn't a high performance look in the in the university systems. It's starting to change in the last five years, but. Um, so I kind of figured out the CSCS more, I'll say, outside of school. And I wrote that one month after graduating. Nice. And I found that anatomy and 
physiology. All that stuff was tight. I had the text. I'd gone through it, but I didn't have to go back and be like, oh, I remember learning all that anatomy in school. Do I have to go back to my text? It was all fresh. So uh, I wrote that like one month after. I felt real good about that. Nice. Yeah. I highly recommend doing that. If you're listening and you don't have it yet, I waited about three years after I had graduated and it was... It was a little bit of a refresher course. Uh, actually, back in that back in that day, we had to drive to, you know, go to take the test. So I had to drive to UMass Amherst down in Boston, and uh, pretty sure I had just all my notes printed out on the seat of the car. And I also because we had MapQuest, so we had like these printed directions you know no gps and i got to boston and i had been studying the whole way and i was like huh how'd i get here i remember an inch of the drive (laughs) but luckily i made it you made it and i passed it Uh, i've got a few fun kind of go-to questions that you've probably heard from me asking um every show but uh if you could have dinner or conversation with any up any be anybody three people up to three people living dead or fictional characters who would it be oh that, that is good um <laughs> there's a richard Feynman is a, a phys, former physicist who had like was extremely popular for being both funny and a able to speak to anybody about high level physics questions um, and there's some books about him that I haven't I've read articles about him but I haven't read his, I've flipped through his books but he would be one because he seemed um, he seemed brilliant since he was a kid at building experiments mm-hmm. like 12 year old like building his own radio and setting up all these cool experiments and then as he got older his ability to engage with people on all these scientific topics really simply was great and so I think uh, a lot of times when we're trying to innovate, the hardest part is designing a proper experiment. Mm-hmm. And we forget how, with researchers, that's what they do all day. And for us, we like, I want to know what's going on with my athlete X. But then we don't realize, like, okay, well, you should test X and Y compared to the difference between these would probably tell us that. Like, usually we need help on that. And yeah. I think he would, he would be really helpful in that. Um, Daniel Coyle uh, is writing coming up with a new book called The Culture Code. I'm sure sitting down with him would be fantastic learning what he learned during this process on building company culture. I think that's something that in the last few years has has been a topic of interest of mine because anytime you've started to work for a long time, you realize there's times in your career where you're way more happy at work and you feel like everyone's happy and it's productive and you have a great team. And then there's times where that relationship is strained yeah. and there's all sorts of different reasons. And it's always in flux depending on who comes in, who comes out time yeah. of the year. So always knowing what great culture is, is a good one. Nice. Um, like what would be the third? It's a tough one. Scott Caulfield. <laughs> you got it. Check. You checked it off today. <laughs> Uh, how about if there was any coaching practice that you could eliminate from the coaching world, what would you get rid of that people wouldn't be able to use anymore? Get rid of in coaching. Um, one thing that I can't stand, but I get, and that's where I don't know that I would eliminate fully, but I'd ask people to reconsider is these built-out systems of progressions and regressions for exercises. And I think they're 
they're equally like it seems when you write it out you're like this is going to be great because it's going to empower these athletes to progress properly but for every athlete that you think you're progressing properly you're holding one back who could have skipped three steps Mm -hmm. and i don't think we do a good enough job like at the collegiate level sometimes i see people are like oh you know they're going to do a couple months of goblet squatting before front squatting like you can take a person, if you're one-on-one with someone, you walk into a gym, you watch some goblet squat, and if it's okay, you can grab a bar, show them how to do it, put their hands in the right place, elbow in the right place, let them feel it. Two steps in one, and then you can put both into your program at different levels of intensity from the very first day. you If you go into weightlifting, they're not going to shy away from not showing you the lifts for months right right? like within the first week you're going to try a snatch at least with a bar a clean a jerk overhead squats pulls so i think anytime i see those and i see it a lot i always go man like allow yourself to coach and allow an athlete to learn maybe the first day the front squat doesn't look great but if it's just a bar they're not going to die it's like let them feel it and then you can load it how you want and you can always go back to goblets on different light days and i so i i think those progression regressions when they become overly systematized for different exercises you got to think you're holding people back just as much as you're building what you think is a a good passage but when you have 50 kids and you don't know and you don't want to coach them all or can't I do understand that it's like, oh, well, I make sure they can all do goblets and I can walk away and yeah, yeah. the group's too big. Yeah. But um, I think to me that one's always a disservice where I'm like, man, let you want them to learn how to front squat? Just give them a bar on first day. Yeah. 2,000 reps. Right. <laughs> no, I like that one. That's good. Um, how about if you were same kind of point along in an entirely different career, what would you have been doing? Ooh, entirely different career. Um, kind of two answers, I guess, for that. I I thought about engineering, and I do I do like math and science and solving problems, but I don't know. I never really knew what what specific one I wanted. So that that's a tough one. Um, and then I have two things about me. I've I have a pretty good memory for for remembering a lot of little facts and things and and I tend to argue and debate a lot really on logic and my wife <laughs> always goes why aren't you a lawyer why are you wasting your time <laughs> in a waiting room um, so potentially going to law because I just think I, I sort of act like a lawyer a lot in how I approach subject matter nice um, cool how about if uh, people listening into this want to reach out to you how uh, you got social media what's the best way to connect with you yeah I'm on on Twitter Instagram and uh, Facebook Corey K S and C all letters so sand C on Twitter and Instagram I'm not private so you could find me follow me message me and then um, I can I can patch you through my email after that Um, but I I tend to respond to everyone and and I'm pretty open with if you want to email me and ask questions or you you want to know about resources that that would help or things that we're doing I'd be happy to share anything that we do Awesome. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes and I appreciate you coming on the show and safe travels back to Canada. This was the NSCA's coaching podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. 
Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.